being the Obositor New Moon, it's a good opportunity to come together <coughs> to hear the recitation of the Bhattimokha. It's also the beginning of summer, the warmer weather. So it's a suitable time to stay outdoors more, practicing sitting and walking. <clears throat> whether it's the cold weather or the hot weather, the aim of practice is always the same. We're training in the Dhamma Vinaya for the ending of suffering. And sometimes they call the bhikkhu training, or they compare it to an apprenticeship. In the old days, various crafts and trades would have apprentices, people who become out of school and learn with a craftsman a certain trade, a certain craft that they can go on and use to earn their living. And we're not that much different. We come to live with a teacher for at least five years of training and maybe longer depending on the circumstances and we're learning a craft they call it the craft of the heart the craft of the ending of suffering so learning both understanding and how to practice the Vinaya in daily life until it just becomes normal for us and learning the techniques of meditation both Samatha and Vipassana. Again, so that we become familiar with them and can rely on them for training the heart, both to calm down and then for developing clarity around, the, around suffering and its causes and how to abandon the causes of suffering. The general principles of the practice don't really change from person to person. And they have been applied and used for thousands of years now. So they have a certain guarantee that comes with them. Others have practiced in this way and gained great benefit. But there's also room for some individual aspects of the practice because we all have different characters. And just as some, some monks are tall, some are short, some are heavy, some are light, some are dark-skinned, some are light-skinned. We have our differences, but the general pr principles of practice don't change.
but we may emphasize certain things in our practice according to our character, things that we find work for us, certain reflections, meditation objects, how many special ascetic practices we take on, and so on. So partly in our practice we're learning to skillfully adapt to what's needed to deal with our own particular personality and karma, what will work to help us gain more clarity and abandon the causes of suffering. We also adapt as we stay in the robes longer because our experience grows. <coughs> we become a little wiser, more familiar with the practice, more used to looking at ourselves and seeing what we need to do. And also externally our situation may change as we grow older in the robes. Maybe we take on new or extra additional responsibilities, duties. We get to know more monks, we get to know more people. So as that takes place, we also have to learn how to adapt our practice to deal with changing circumstances, changing physical circumstances, our age, our body changes, changing environment. Sometimes we move from monastery to monastery, changing personnel, the people we relate to. Sometimes we're living in solitude, sometimes with a larger community, sometimes with not much interaction with the laity, sometimes with a lot of interaction with the laity. We have to learn how to adapt our practice also. Uh, Lumpur Chah encouraged us in the beginning of the practice just to get used to the way things are for us, for each individual practitioner, each individual monk. Yeah. Because we are different, we have to start with who we are, our past, our character, the way our particular set of five candors present themselves. We have to accept that. So the foundation of the practice is the Brahma Viharas. Goodwill, compassion for ourself as one human being, as a practitioner. As we develop our practice more, then we also understand others around us and extend that kindness and compassion out to others. Why do we do this? Well, it has a good effect on the mind. The more we bring up goodwill and a good attitude towards ourselves, a caring attitude, and the more that spreads out to others, then helps the mind to settle down and calm down quickly. Helps us to deal with some of the emotional stresses of changing from the lay life into the monastic form. The renunciation, the loss of certain perceived freedoms, loss of possessions, 
moving away from old family, old friends, living a simple celibate life in the forest, bring up all kinds of emotional issues at first. So we need some goodwill, kindness towards ourselves for that. As we understand our own situation better and how to deal with it, how to approach it better, then we understand other monks are in the same position so we can understand them better and develop the same kind of kindness and compassion that we develop for us for ourselves. So whether you look at your individual practice or the monastery as a whole or the Sangha as a whole, you know, this is the first quality that we rely on. Say so the lay supporters who come to the monastery seek refuge from a, a world that often seems very crazy, unfair, not peaceful, it's often full of conflict, rivalry. So they're looking for somewhere where there's <coughs> a sense of peace, a sanctuary, when they come to the monastery. It's a physical sanctuary or refuge, but also in the behavior of the monks and the wisdom of the Sangha as we practice. This is something we give back to the world, and people are looking for that. Of course, in order to give that back to the world, we also have to develop it in ourselves first. You notice when you put effort into developing goodwill, acceptance, then any meditation technique you're using tends to go better and the mind settles down easier. We can let go of accumulated habits, both good and bad, and the self-identity that we come across as we start meditating. We can let go of it better because we have a sense of goodwill it makes us more feel more relaxed, more calm within ourselves. So as we find, as we meditate more and live in the monastery longer, well, there'll be certain old suppressed karmas that come up based on our childhood or, or our past life, adult life. We've had a collection of good and bad experiences which have left their impressions on our heart. As we become more peaceful and more aware of ourselves, well, some of it comes up. Memories pop up. Sometimes just feelings that we aren't actually able to attribute to a specific event, but they come up as we bark a karma, just resultant karma. So people often feel painful feelings, feelings of tension, stress, Sometimes it's physical, just related to actions, activities in our life, to do with work or fasting or the way we sit, the way we walk, all kinds of things. Sometimes it's just mental, mental pain, mental stress, sometimes associated with memories, thought formations that have already been embedded a long time ago. Sometimes... There's no immediate cause other than just being peaceful. And then things seem to percolate up, come up. 
Either way, we need a foundation of goodwill for ourselves to deal with this, these different things. And also, of course, mindfulness, awareness. Not just mindfulness directed to an object, like the breath or the body, but also all-round awareness, sampajanya, you know, awareness of the purpose of the practice and the best way to deal with whatever is arising. Sati is always supported by sampajanya, the two essential qualities we're developing in our practice. Sometimes we can forget that. We just focus on one object, we might say in a blind or rigid way, trying to exclude everything else. And our wisdom faculty is not sharp enough, clear enough, because we're not developing much sampajanya. So then we can miss very obvious things that are coming up in our mental experience or just in the way we relate to the world. We may be developing a lot of mindfulness on an object, but then other things that are very obvious to the people around us, we're missing. That's where the Vinaya helps us also, because the Vinaya is training us not only in mindfulness, but in clear, clear comprehension or all-round awareness, Sampajanya. And we get to know you know, the right time, the right place for different activities, the right way to behave, the right way to speak, to act. A lot of the Vinaya is training in this, and it provides additional support for the development of meditation, inner awareness. And partly it's just purifying us of the, the coarser mental defilements that come out in our ordinary behavior, say as lay people. As monks you learn not to be so uh, argumentative, we learn not to flirt, we learn not to manipulate other people for our own more selfish ends. And we learn to train our speech and our actions so that they're purified in line with the Dhamma. That requires not only mindfulness, but all-round awareness. We have to learn to reflect on what we're saying, what we're doing, and use the Vinaya as a way of training our decision-making and the way we think. They say, thinking Vinaya. So it becomes normal for us. And this has a very valuable way of training the mind, becoming used to, in daily life, just letting go of unskillful states of mind that might prompt unskillful action, unskillful speech, and developing the skillful, the good, the wholesome. And if unskillful states do arise, we recognize them quicker the more we pay attention to the Vinaya and develop mindfulness and clear comprehension with it, unwholesome intentions start to stick out like a sore thumb. But we have to have that reflective quality, being able to look back at our the mental states underlying our behavior and then use the Vinaya to help guide us.
the more effort we put into that, then when we come to meditate, it's just another step, refining awareness, turning attention inwards to let go of the five hindrances. And the Vinaya training is really helping us to shed and get through the, the hindrances before they either stopping them from arising in the first place or helping them to close them down, let them go as they arise. And then when you meditate, things go much quicker, much smoother. And the Vinaya training is already develop, helping us to develop in wisdom, compassion, renunciation, mindfulness, all-round awareness, all the good qualities that we need. The Vinaya is training, and then as we develop a meditation object, it sharpens that, refines that. As the Kubrajan say, it's like when you use cloth to make a robe, so to take the, the dye from the jackfruit tree, you have to clean the cloth first before it can take the dye. Otherwise you end up with blotches. Even new cloth that's offered on Katina Day, they offer a bolt of cloth. It'll still have starch and other products in it to preserve it while it's waiting for sale. So then if you don't wash it before you dye it, it'll, it'll end up blotchy. The, the cloth won't receive the dye evenly or well. So our mind is like that. We need to put effort into the Vinaya training to help cl cleanse the mind, cleanse the heart through our speech, our actions first. Then when we meditate on an object, it's much more effective. We don't waste so much time caught into regret or doubt or the agitation that comes from from not being very aware of our speech and actions. As we do settle down, we get more used to the Vinaya and we train with a meditation object regularly. Even if you don't yet attain deep states of samadhi, over a long period of time you should be able to see that it's beneficial. In the short term, of course, we have periods where we feel more stressed, suffering, uninspired. We have mental pain, physical pain and so on. Short term we often have a lot of ups and downs, but hopefully over the long term you can see the benefit of developing the path, developing meditation. And one way that happens, if you keep meditating, developing awareness on an object, you keep getting to know yourself, your character. And the more clarity you gain from developing mindfulness and awareness and clear comprehension, you can't help but notice certain mental defilements will come up more than others. You get to know yourself. And we, we can, you can probably appreciate everyone has different characters. Some incline more towards greed, attraction for beautiful things, beautiful people. Others incline more towards aversion. Others are more dull. Others think a lot and worry a lot and so on. You get to know 
those particular mental characteristics that come off come up in your mind more often than others so that you can work with them find skillful means to address them so if you're particularly prone towards attachment to beauty in the beginning it's often just beautiful requisites and new and better requisites better accommodation better beautiful uh, tasty food better cloth better camping gear and so on and that also may progress onto attraction towards the opposite sex and sexual desire and lust then you have to get to know yourself be honest and keep developing reflections on the unattractive side of those things the temporary nature of those things the unattractive side if you acquire a new requisite that you know you're satisfied with take a moment to reflect this won't last just paint a picture in your mind of that particular requisite when it's at the end of its days when it reaches its the end of its life so if you get a new robe that you're happy with the color is right the size is right the stitching is good well just imagine that robe in five years time full of holes patches and all gray whatever it is whether it's one of the four requisites or if it's a person you're attracted to a person maybe they're young and look attractive or imagine them as they're old what will they look like when they're 75 rather than when they're 25 I was walking meditation today and since I've lived in that kuti about 10 years every year there's been a goanna walking around the kuti you must live near there and it comes out every summer now it looks very old all the beautiful markings on its skin are faded it's sort of grey and blotchy it looks looks very old there's a much younger goanna down by the lake with nice bright shiny skin moves very fast very agile and this old one you can tell it's just so old it looks really worn out these sort of ordinary things you encounter just reminding you that your attraction to the beauty of the world it's not going to last is it even goannas fade and age you have a new robe you have a new kuti a new requisite whatever it is even food you eat it and then it's gone it's in your stomach and it ends up coming out as excrement it doesn't last so if you notice that particular tendency in your habit then bring up these reflections to help to let go balance the emotions you know, all the desire that's wanting and seeking new things balance it a bit by reflecting on impermanence or unattractiveness the same with aversion you know, if you're prone to aversion towards other monks places people situations then work hard to bring up more metta and more compassion really work with those defilements you notice are plaguing you bugging you 
Ajahn Chah used to do this with great humor, you know, point out when people had specific attachments that they weren't picking up on yet. There's a famous story of the English monk who was never satisfied with anything in the monastery, he was never satisfied with his requisites or the behavior of the other monks. So he'd always be requesting to change monasteries. Ajahn Chah would send him off to one monastery with a large community. He didn't go well there, came back and complained, so he sent him off to a very poor branch monastery with just one or two monks. He didn't like it there, it was too poor. They sent him down to a monastery near Bangkok. That was too busy and too well supported. He didn't like that and came back. Every time he went away somewhere and come back, he'd be complaining. So Ajahn Chah said, it's like he's got some dog poo in his yarn. And it's smelling and everywhere he goes. He puts his yarn down. It smells, so he's obviously unhappy. He doesn't realize the problem is the dog poo he's bringing with him. If we attach to our negative outlook, negative attitudes, negative thinking, then it will follow us wherever we go, just like our shadow, it will follow us. You'll never find satisfaction wherever you are. These are the ordinary experiences we have to work with. We come to the monastery, it's a peaceful enough place. We have time, we have good training, we have companions who are people of integrity, it's safe, it's peaceful, <coughs> but we still have to work with our inner, inner suffering, the mental defilements, the hindrances that come up every day. And we don't need to waste a lot of time fighting with the world outside. We don't have to compete with other people to go and earn a living. And that's our good fortune to be monks. And we do sacrifice, we don't have wealth or property, but we don't have to go out and earn a living, compete with the world. But we do have to compete with ourselves, with our defilements and our attachments and our wrong thinking. That's where we have to work. The only way to deal with that is to develop more clarity, steadiness of mind, mindfulness and wisdom. And the aim is to sustain the practice so that mindfulness and clear comprehension is there all the time every posture all the time. This is where real unshakable peace comes. So even though defilements arise, we don't give in to them. We see them for what they are and let them go. If your mind is steady, mindfulness is more continuous, then we can do that. Because there's a sense of separation, distance between the knower and the defilement. And a defilement is seen as a defilement. We don't want to grab hold of it anymore because you know it defiles the mind. When we say defile, it means it hurts you, it brings you suffering. It's hot. And defilements make us hot, just like this weather makes us hot. And if you have greed or lust, it heats you up. Sometimes physically, you, know, you sweat when you have a lot of lust or greed. Physically you can shake, you're agitated. And mentally you're completely shaken. 
You're not balanced. You're not at peace within yourself. Anger is the same. When anger comes, it shakes the mind, agitates you, because mindfulness, clear comprehension is shaken loose, and we fall prey to that mood. So our aim is to bring out mindfulness. The important thing to see is mindfulness, clear comprehension, and wisdom is not just suppression of a defilement. It's maintaining awareness steady enough to see defilement as a defilement, and then the mind will want to let it go drop it, not indulge it, not follow it, which is different from just suppression. The suppression plays a role in our practice. Sometimes we are developing samatha, you know, focusing on an object, and we just let go of everything without contemplating much at all, develop a state of singleness of mind, peaceful, joyful, happy, and that has a role. It certainly balances our emotions, gives us a calm, steady feel to the mind. But then we also have to contemplate. Otherwise, even if you come out of a state of singleness of mind, all the, the defilements will re reoccur. And many monks have that problem. They may attain a nice state of peace, samadhi, but they can still fall into lust, fall into anger, worry, it's just waiting for the right trigger. Sometimes it's a health issue. You, know, you can attain samadhi and feel peaceful, and forget about all your problems, all the issues of the world, even your own defilements. But then your mind comes out of that, you encounter some health issue and then you fall into worry, depression, anxiety based on that, because the attachments are still there. So we have to contemplate. We have to get used to the way things are. So if we do have a health issue, well, that's the way things are. We have to contemplate it. Make it part of the practice. The death of our loved ones. Difference of opinion with another monk. Encountering pleasant things that are give rise to desire and attraction. Whatever the kind of temptation or stimulation, this is where we have to maintain mindfulness and contemplate, see through it, maintain that distance. Not just the distance of entering a state of samadhi, but the distance of wisdom that knows this is impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self not to be grasped at as self, not to be identified with as me or mine, because it doesn't last. And there's no point grasping at things that don't last. <clears throat> really, we're learning to become very familiar with this mind, and part of that Practice is getting really familiar with our own mental suffering, mental agitation, and the root causes of it. Greed, hatred, delusion. And we can't run away from suffering or distract ourselves from suffering and penetrate the Four Noble Truths. It can't be done. And part of our practice is facing up to suffering, looking at it and learning from it. 
by using the skillful means that the Buddha gave us. You know, the way of the world is to run away from suffering. As soon as there's a problem, you look for distraction. If you can distract yourself temporarily, good. If you can distract yourself endlessly, well, better. But that's the way of the world. They're not really getting down to the root cause of the suffering or abandoning it, simply avoiding it. Get rid of the person you don't like. Earn more money so you can get the things you want. Try and outrun the suffering until eventually it catches up with you, say in old age, sickness and death. And then it overwhelms them. People, however much they've managed to get away from suffering in their life, sooner or later it catches up because it's part of our existence. It's bound up with suffering. Better to go the way of the Buddha, which is you know, maybe short term, it's a bit painful because you're looking directly at suffering and where it comes from. But long term you're doing the, that which is most beneficial for yourself. So, you know, the pain that comes from meditation, if you're having painful legs, painful back, maybe short term suffering, but it's for long term improvement of your the clarity and the wisdom from mindfulness and contemplation. You know, the discomfort of renunciation, maybe it's a short-term painful experience, but long-term it's leading to good things. Being firm in your vinaya, your sila, not giving in to temptation to follow greed or anger. Short-term requires a lot of restraint, patience, but long-term it gives you freedom. And we call it the path to freedom, the Vinaya, the way out of suffering. One monk went to stay with Ajahn Chah and he was another monk who was having a lot of problems with anger. He said, I feel so hot from anger. Ajahn Chah encouraged him to look at it more. He said, mm, you should make yourself even hotter. When you're angry, go into your kuti. Put all your robes on, wrap your sangati around you, close the windows, and really sit there feeling hot with anger, and really get to know it. Then you can let go of it, because you fully understand it. These are the kind of victories we're aiming for as monks. You can't run away from things forever as a monk. You have to learn to face up to things. To be strong, be brave, be patient, be calm. But as you do that, your wisdom matures, you grow, so then you can let things go. And they don't bother you so much. So the new moon night is a night of practice. Time to sit, to walk, we'll listen to the Patimokha, but it's also a time to put effort into developing mindfulness. You know, even if it's you're tired or you're restless or bored, just put up with these experiences in an effort to develop more mindfulness, more wisdom, you'll find in the long run this is how how things progress, how your practice grows. So 
I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.